Notes on Elven Architecture Soaring and graceful, or static and repetitive, High Elf architecture divides Imperial critics much like a painted cow at a Reachman feast. Their curved gables and strong pointed steeples emphasize height, while ceilings a giant would have trouble scraping his head on and rooftops stretching proudly up toward the firmament. Their structures provide a visual echo to the High Elves' appearance, as they try to contrast their structures with the abodes of other races. The more perceptive of historians, such as Canterbury Congonius of Skingrad, have discerned clear similarities when comparing settlements of the Altmeri and Aeliad unmistakably because they share the same ancestors. Where the Aeliads departed Somerset Isle, the Altmer remained, yet their structures share many common elements. One only need walk the ruins near Bravel, then compare paintings of Skywatch for corroboration. Subtle changes are less obvious. While the Altmer are snobbish, they never sank to alien levels of perniciousness. And the more refined buildings of Oridon reflect this. Such structural designs stem from ancient roots, using methods tried and tested, but not to the point of becoming obsolete. The Altmer seek refinement rather than innovation and they are conceitedly resistant to large-scale changes, but are content to tinker. The results reveal highly sophisticated precision, harmony, and the selection and repetition of orthodox compositions. And before we move on with our stories from the Aldmeri Dominion, I just want to briefly highlight that you can enjoy all past and future Lore to Sleep To content completely ad and sponsor free and in your favorite podcast app for only 99 cents a month by clicking the join button and becoming a channel member. But now, let's return to our story. The March Explored Chapter 1 Gentle Reader Welcome. Welcome to open skies and red earth. The fields of grass and savage landscape of elsewhere. Welcome, reader, to the end of the world. To the Reaper's March. Herein, find an unedited journal of observations. Thoughts jotted down during my first trip across this stark landscape. Some of the hidden gems of the land, some of the most striking locales, will see description in these pages. From I, your humble guide, enjoy. Chapter 3 The march marks the eastern boundary of Valenwood, and thus a boundary of the ancient Diaspora. While the rare pile of stones can be found deep into elsewhere 
The ruins of the march provide some of the most interesting insights into the Iliad psychology. Chapter 6 There's no truth to the rumors of dark cults in the march. I can assure you, gentle reader. Bandits may take your goods and threaten your life, but the fell princes of oblivion hold no sway in this savage land. Chapter 7 I will say this for the Khajiit. Their architecture is wholly unique on the continent of Tamriel. The beauty of their temples is awe-inspiring to behold. The house of the dance in Ralka is a wonder. It's a shame, then, that so many of their greatest monuments are decayed and ruined. So many fine places fall into disrepair. It seems to be a theme across the face of Nern, does it not, reader? Beauty and splendor fallen into ruin over time. Chapter 9 And I must confess, I don't understand it at all. I've spent six seasons in the march, all told, and the lunar religion of the Khajiit makes just as much sense to me now as it did when I first arrived. Something about the pool of the moons on the waters of your mind. I don't know. Thank Ariel we high elves have finer, cleaner sensibility to our religious studies. The Eagle and the Cat A wife, a husband, a son or daughter, mother or father, aunt or uncle. Each of us has lost one or more of these. It has touched every family and elsewhere. The dreadful epidemic, the terrible plague, the Nahatan flu. It started in Senchal, on Sweet Street, in the Black Kiergo slums among the skooma struck. At first, the city elders dismissed it as a toxin in the goods, but then it spread to Dagai's pride and squint eye, and was reported from the docks in Alabaster as well. And suddenly, it was everywhere. Porval, Orcrest, Dune, Corinthi, and all points in between. The winds of Kinarthi bore the coughing and retching to every ear. We seemed to be witnessing the death of cats on Nern. Slowly, elsewhere began to fight back against its doom. Clan mother, Misa Bako of Corinthi first identified how the flu spread from Khajiit to Khajiit. Rathuni La Donwhisker, a daughter of Azura from Riverhold, 
distilled a sorghum tea that mitigated the worst of the symptoms. Even I contributed, organizing the remnants of the Mains Legion to maintain order and put this new knowledge to use. But it was not enough. Everywhere, Khajiit were dying. By the litter, by the pride, by the entire tribe. The moon bishops read the portents, and they were dire indeed. Then, past all expectation, help arrived from an unforeseen direction. Over the western waves came the elves of Somerset, bringing physicians, healers, desperately needed supplies. And one more thing, hope, hope that elsewhere would survive. At first, many cats were suspicious. Never before had the haughty high elves helped the Khajiiti. Why now? But their cannon reeves passed among us, as if unafraid of the flu, and explained, the Altmer did it not from friendship, but from policy. We needed their help now, and they would need our help later. Invaders were coming to southwest Tamriel, they said, and the High Elves could not repulse them without Khajiiti claws at their side. To fight against mutual enemies, ah, that was a logic we catfolk could understand. So we accepted the aid of the High Elves and their sly cousins, the Wood Elves, and gradually the Naughton flew began to recede. And when Queen Aeron of Alinor proposed the Alliance Treaty of the Aldmeri Dominion, we took Plume and Claw and signed it. Now, fellow Khajiiti, we have been through the Forges of Torment, and with our new allies we emerge stronger than ever. We welcome the chance to test Blade and Edge against these invaders to spill their blood and take their bright objects. For now is the time of the Dominion. Master Zoram's Tale Part 1 The Temple of Two Moons Dance in Torval has for many hundreds of years been the finest training ground in all Tamriel for warriors of foot and fist. The masters teach students of all ages, from all parts of Tamriel, the most ancient techniques and the most modern variations. And many a formal pupil has graduated to great fame. I myself trained there, and as a young child, I remember asking my first master, Zoram, which former student he had felt had best learned the lessons of the temple. I was not a teacher when I met this man, but a student myself, he said, smiling in reminiscence, his great wrinkled face becoming even more like the withered fruit 
of the bathroom tree. This was long ago, before your parents were born. For many years I had trained at the temple, rising to study in more difficult and demanding classes, taught by the wisest and most learned masters of the Two Moons Dance. Jeananth, you will come to understand that the tempering of your body must attend the tempering of your mind, and there is a prescribed order of training we at the temple have designed over the years in concordance with the way of Riddle Thar. I had reached the highest levels where my power and skill were such that even by supernatural, magical means, few could ever best me in weaponless combat. There was a servant at the temple at that time, a Dunmer a few years older than myself and those in my class. We had never noticed him but in passing over the years, for he would enter the training chambers quietly, clean for a few minutes' time, and leave without saying a word. Not that we would have listened if he spoke, so enwrapped were we in our own exercises and lessons. When our last master told some of us, myself included, that the time had come for us to leave the temple or become teachers, there was a great festival of celebration. The main himself deigned to visit and observe our ceremony. As we were and are a temple of philosophy and combat, there were contests of debate and competitions in the temple's war arena, not only among the elite few, but open to all students. On the first day of the festival, I was examining the gladiatorial roster to see who I would fight with first. When I heard a conversation behind me, the servant speaking to the archpriest of the temple, it was the first time I heard the Dunmer's voice, and the first time I heard his name. I understand you wish to rejoin your people's struggle and Morrowind, Terran, the archpriest was saying. I am sorry to hear it. You have been an institution here for many, many years, and you will be missed. If there's anything I can do for you, please name it. Thank you for your kindness, the Dunmer replied. I do have a request, but I fear that you would be loath to grant it. Ever since I first came to the temple, I have been watching the students learn and practiced myself when my duties allowed for it. I know I am but a servant here, but I would be honored if you would allow me to compete in the war arena. I stifled my gasp at the Murr's impertinence. To even suggest that he would be worthy to fight with those of us who had trained so hard. To my surprise, the archpriests agreed adding the name Terran Omethan to the roster at the beginner's level.
I was eager to whisper the news to my fellow elite students, but my first bout was scheduled to begin in a few minutes' time. Part 2 I fought 18 competitions in a row, besting all. The crowd gathered in the arena knew of my prowess, and gave polite, unsurprised applause at the end of each fight. As much as I focused on my own battles, I could not help noticing that other competitions were receiving more and more attention in the arena. The spectators whispered among themselves, and more began drifting away to see something that was evidently more spectacular and unusual than my unbroken string of victories. One of the most important lessons we can teach from the Two Moons Dance is the lesson of rejecting one's vanity. I understood then the importance of achieving a personal synchronicity with one's body and mind, of rebuffing outside influences of no importance, but I admit I had not accepted that lesson in my heart. I knew I was good, but my pride was hurt. It came down to a contest of champions, and I was one of the two. When I saw who the other fighter would be, my mood turned from one of wounded dignity to complete disbelief. My adversary was the servant Terran. It must be a joke or some final philosophical test, I reasoned. Then I looked into the crowd and saw anticipation of a great battle to come in every eye. We gave one another the sign of respect. I stiffly and he with great elegance and modesty. The fight began. Initially, I sought to end it quickly still thinking that he was unworthy to be cleaning the arena, let alone fighting in it. In retrospect, I was being illogical, as I must have known he had bested as many students as I had to reach that final level. He offered simple counterblows to my attacks, and responded in kind. His style was expansive, encompassing sophisticated arcane footplay one moment and simple jabs and kicks the next. I tried assailments intended to dazzle, but his face never showed either fear or contempt of my abilities. The fight lasted a long time. I don't recall when I realized I was destined to lose, but when it ended, I was not surprised by the outcome. With a sense of unusual and true modesty, I bowed to him. But I could not resist asking him as we left the arena, to the sound of thunderous applause, how he had so secretly grown to become a master. I never had a choice to rise in the temple, Taryn replied. Every day, I cleaned the training chambers of the elite classes and then the beginners. So, you see, I never had the misfortune to forget those early mistakes, lessons, and techniques while observing and learning the ways of the master. 
He left Torval early the next morning to return to his homeland, and I never saw him again. Though I've heard people say that he's become a priest and a teacher. I became a teacher as well, for children just beginning their training in the two moons, as well as the elite. And I make certain to bring my best pupils to see how the unlearned fight, so that they might never forget. Kajidi Arms and Armor For a race living in the oppressively hot climate of elsewhere, it is impractical, in most cases, for them to wear heavy clothing and armor and the cat folk's naturally lithe frame and dexterity favors more lightweight protection. The Khajiiti abhor restraint and encumbrance, and their craftsfolk are diligent about providing armor to augment their prowling form. At its lightest, Khajiiti armor is often mistaked for well-appointed but flamboyant clothing. Quilted or padded cloth adorns the midriff and vital areas. This is augmented with vivid patterns of color and accented with loose shawl, ribbons, or trinkets. An outfit that would resemble in mocking insults if worn by a race less decadent and hedonistic. For battles where the Khajiit expects punishment, they favor cloth and leather greaves, gauntlets, and a light helmet. This allows for supremely agile movement without sacrificing speed or fashion. For this race of acrobats, even the heaviest Khajiiti armor is loose-fitting, but actually has lacquered metal plates laced together with leather, under which is an embroidered tunic completed with a helmet of fluted silver and durable linen. It is only under the most harrowing of conditions the Khajiit will don the full battle armor. As for weaponry, curved scimitars, sabers and knives, or punch daggers serve as the elongation of their own slashing clawed hands. Occasionally, these claw shapes extend to ritual tridents, and the savage points on their longbow arrows or javelins. Thalmor Handbill Loyal citizens of the Isles, heed the statement of the Thalmor. Bear witness to these words about our new allies, the Khajiit and the Wood Elves. Integration with our new Wood Elf and Khajiiti allies continues apace. To promote alliance harmony, loyal Thalmor agents have drawn together this short list of helpful notices. Follow this mandatory guidance with cheer, and our new allies will look on you with favor. Do not refer to Khajiit as cats, kitties, fuzzies, or any other derogatory feline-based term. 
Fijiti delicacies are often very sweet or spiced with the exotic substance known as moon sugar. Diners beware. Do not touch a Khajiit's tail without permission. Our Khajiiti allies have a unique dialect. Mocking their speech or imitating it is considered quite rude and non-Aldmerian. When inviting a wood elf to dine, know that the resources of the forest are sacred to them. Serve venison, but no salads. Do not refer to wood elves as shorties, runties, or any other derogatory height-based terms. Have a care when imbibing wood elf brews, as their beverages are very different than our own. Do not imply to wood elves that they are cannibals, or ask them about how they dispose of their dead. Eagles unite. Cohort Briefing, Orinthia. This unit will begin occupation of Orinthia within a fortnight. To ensure our success in the operation, every soldier needs some knowledge of the city and its civilians. Go in unprepared, and you'll end up robbed blind or stuck full of wood elf arrows, without knowing how or why. Having spent some years guarding caravans in transit from Orinthia to Skingrad, I can provide the information you need to avoid personal harm and unnecessary provocation of the citizenry. Don't be lulled into complacency by the familiar buildings. This city is nothing like home. Though some Colovian traders from north of the River Strid have settled here, they're outnumbered by the Wood Elves from the south, and the Khajiit who roam in from the eastern savannas. In the past, the city's allegiance has changed as often as the wind. But the flimsy Khajiiti hovels and the elves' temporary tree shaping don't endure like the good Colovian stone from which most of the lasting structures are built. You'll encounter plenty of wood elves and Khajiit, so a general awareness of their customs and practices will prove useful. Wood elves become unreasonably aggressive if they believe a plant or tree is in danger. If any trees need to be cleared, obtain permission from your superior and assemble an armed squad. Also, be aware that wood elves are fond of indulging in drink, and their normally irreverent tongues become even worse when soaked. A word of advice? Do not engage in drinking contests with these elves, no matter how they taunt you. Khajiit make up a sizable portion of the population, though few hold permanent residence here or anywhere. These moon worshippers drift in and out in bands, bringing their sugary liquors and garish fabrics to market. Exercise caution if you are approached by one of these pleasure partners 
that often travel with these caravans. They are invariably thieves, and by the time you've realized you've been picked clean, they'll be halfway back to Dune. On a related note, we've caught wind that a ring of Skula smugglers may be operating out of the city's shamefully disguised Temple of the Divines. This is an affront to the Divines, and will be investigated once our hold is established. We will clear out the scum if the rumors prove true, but there is to be absolutely no looting of the temple. In time, we will restore it to its rightful glory. Your job is to make certain that our grip on Orinthia is ironclad, enforce martial law, and keep the peace as much as possible. But be swift to quell any potential disturbance. Remember, no culture can claim traditional ownership of this city. It belongs to the banner with the most troops on the ground, and that's going to be ours. Woodhearth, a pocket guide. Since the disappearance of Falinesti, there is no city that completely expresses the character and history of the Wood Elves more than Woodhearth. Situated on the southwestern shores of Valenwood, Woodhearth had humble beginnings as an imperial settlement. Constructed and maintained by the emperors in order to facilitate trade with the region's Wood Elf settlements. The Wood Elves of the region reacted with a mix of curiosity, friendship, and hostility to the city, which was part thriving port town and part fortress, protecting against the wilds of Valenwood. Several times, hostile Bosmer led assaults against the city's walls. Several times, they managed to bring down sections of the wall with concentrated bursts of powerful destruction magics, only to be driven back by the tenacity of the Imperial forces and their superior equipment. A peace was eventually struck with the green-packed Bosmer of Valenwood, and in time a Bosmer settlement sprang up and even overtook the Imperial buildings, as that special connection the Wood Elves have with their forest was invoked to create the tree homes and walkways that are characteristic of Bosmer settlement. As the Bosmer became an instrumental force in the Empire, control of Woodhearth was gradually ceded back to autonomous Wood Elf rule. A tree thane was established in Woodhearth, and while the parts of the city that had been constructed by the Imperials fell into despair, the city as a whole thrived. Within a generation, the tree thanes of Woodhearth gained a reputation for determined leadership and fair judgment among both the Wood Elves and their allies. At the time of writing, the tree thane of Woodhearth is Fariel, and she governs both as tree thane and as a member of the Thalmor under Queen Aaron of the newly formed Altmeri Dominion. Woodhearth continues to be a major port 
along with Seaside Sanctuary in Valenwood, and it is home to members of all races.